three, two, one. Hello and welcome to There Will Be Bugs, an insect podcast created to enlighten listeners about the surprising world of entomology. I'm one of your hosts, Ben. And I'm your other host, Zilla. And today we're not going to be discussing the cochineal insect. Instead, we're going to be... We did a bad job of reading a book this week. Yeah. <laughs> I've, In my defense, I've been sick the last two weeks. I still might sound a little gravelly, but I'm I getting got, better. I got better. <laughs> I sound fine. Uh, I have the mightier immune system. I will give you that. <laughs> I have the weak, sad immune system. Instead, today we're going to be discussing carrion beetles. I really like carrion beetles. I don't I don't really know that much about a lot of bugs, but I learned about these from you, I think when I did a tattoo for you of them, and I think they're sweet. Yeah, we covered them a little bit in our forensic entomology episode, and we're going to go into a little more detail in this episode about them, and partly because I did a presentation about them in my Ento class, so this was all pretty fresh and it was pretty easy for me to put this episode together and get some content out there while we try and read this book. Reading is hard sometimes. Yeah. Uh, in our defense, we're kind of, well, at least I'm like taking notes as I go, so I can't just like throw it on my audiobook because I'm listening to an audiobook version of it, but I can't like do that at work because I'm also trying to take notes about it, so I kind of have to just sit there and listen to it. Right. <laughs> Carrion beetles. Uh, we'll cover a little bit of their systematics. So they're in class Insecta. They're order Coleoptera, so your beetles. They're in the superfamily Staphylinoidae. That includes the rove beetles as well. So this is a really large superfamily, even though the family of carrion beetles, Sylphidae, is only 300 species. But there's a few thousand species of rove beetles. So this is a really large family that the carrion beetles kind of get lumped into. And there's two subfamilies, uh, Sylphinae and Necrophorinae. We're going to be talking more about Necrophorinae in, the, in this episode. That's your burying beetles. And Sylphinae are more your carrion beetles. But they have similar ecologies, but there's some distinct differences that the burying beetles do that uh, we're going to cover in this episode. And I guess burying beetles specifically. Yeah. My, maybe my favorite bug. Like I said, there's 300 species worldwide within 15 genera. Sylphinae is commonly called the carrion beetles, where Necrophorinae is commonly called the burying beetles or sexton beetles, which reminds me, whenever I re read the word sexton, it reminds me of Paxton, which is the name <laughs> of Zilla's dog. And you might hear him tip-de-tapping in some of our episodes. <laughs> Most. Uh, they're widely distributed throughout the tropical and temperate climates uh, of the world, excluding de desert ecosystems. So deserts is something that they don't do very well. I, they probably I need wet corpses. Yeah, I, I imagine. imagine. I imagine that it has a lot to do with water. Some basic identification for these beetles: the carrion beetles in general are medium to large in size. They're they're quite a like hefty, sturdy beetle. They can be up to an inch and a quarter in like length. 
uh, which is a large insect to most people, although there's a lot larger insects out there. It's interesting to me that like medium and large have scientific meaning meaning in this context. Like sometimes people ask me for a medium sized tattoo and I'm, I don't know what that means. I, I think for this instance, it kind of, it's, it helps people imagine what, uh, it's, it is not a very scientific term, but it helps people imagine what it might look like as, as like a medium or large-sized beetle. These beetles have large tibial spurs, so on their legs, there's a section of the leg that's the tibia. It's right above the tarsies, which are like the feet of the insect, and then there's like the tibia. It, it mimics human anatomy. And they have these large spurs coming off the backs of their legs. They also have relatively soft elytra. So elytra are what all beetles have. That's the, the forewing is modified into this coating. And so when you see a beetle at rest, they usually, like their wings are tucked underneath these elytra. So it just kind of looks like a shell. And these elytra in beetles can vary a lot where... Some of them have very hard elytra, like I think of a ground beetle as having like a harder elytra, or like your net-winged beetles or your burying beetles have kind of a softer elytra. They're still, they're still like a hefty insect with like good protection, but they're, they're relatively soft compared to some beetles. They have clubbed antenna, so their antenna taper out at the ends into this club shape. And the antenna can vary on like whether they gradually club at the end of their antenna or like, or go into, yeah, club hard or go into like this distinct club at the end. And they're often dark in color with bright orange, yellow, or red markings on the elytra. That's the covering of those wings or the pronotum or scutellum. That's, that's basically this like shield over over their thorax, their, the mid part of their body uh, that can like go, uh, that can kind of cover over the top of their head too. So getting into the ecology of sexton beetles, both of these subfamilies, both the carrion beetles and the sexton beetles are important decomposers of carrion, which means they're necrophagous, meaning they eat dead flesh. However, there's a lot of species... Oh, God, I guess you have to make that distinction because there are plenty of bugs that eat live fish, huh? Flesh. Huh? Yeah, so live flesh would like, be a, like a predator. lay their eggs in there, too, and, like, get eaten from... Yeah, so there, there's a lot mm. of... There's a lot of... Um... I was about to make a who I would you eat dead flesh joke, but I, I get it now. There's a lot of different classifications of what insects eat. And necrophag necrophagus is one. However, not all species within this family of uh, sylphidae are necrophagus. So there's a lot of them that are just outright predators, so they eat other insects. There's some that are uh, phytophagus, so they eat uh, plant material. And there's some that are uh, fungivores, and so they eat uh, fungus. The uh, sexton beetle is a highly studied subfamily throughout history. There's been over 150 behavioral studies in the last 25 years. And a lot of this has to do with the them as parents. Yeah, they're interesting. They're interesting. Uh, so neither of us can bear child <laughs> or have children, but do you want to do you want to go through a scenario where you picture yourself as a sexton beetle parent? Sure. 
So here you are. It's very romantic. (laughs) The most romantic of all the the bugs. So here you are. You're a sexton beetle parent. You're wandering around in the woods at, uh, at night. And you smell something with your antenna. A dead something? You smell a dead something with your antenna. You pick up on the chemicals that a carcass might emit when it's when it dies and you head towards it and i say at night because uh, these beetles are usually most active at night they're uh, they're usually nocturn- nocturnal and do their scavenging at night so you start heading towards this carcass and you're not the only one to find this carcass are there other bugs or am i fighting off like i don't know Worms. In this instance, there's other uh, sexton beetles find this carcass. So a dead mouse is hot real estate for sexton beetles. <laughs> and if there's a lot of you in an area, you can get multiple species and multiple individuals of those species at the carcass. So do they live communally on the carcass then or do they like fight each other for it? At this point, you start fighting for dominance for the carcass. Okay. It's interesting because... At this point, if it was me, I would just die. <laughs> or leave. Yeah, and find a different carcass yeah. that might not be so uh, so com- competitive. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what happens. So this is a very typical, like, traditional case of Darwin's survival of the fittest with sex and beetles. A lot of insects, it doesn't... Size isn't really a determinant of like your fitness, but with sexton beetles, it is. And when you're fighting over this carcass, these fights can be uh, very like physical and brutal. And the weaker beetles are usually the ones losing these battles. Weaker, weaker being usually smaller or like not as strong as like the larger beetles. And uh, these fights can even cause um, beetles to lose parts of their legs or parts of their wings. Uh, you know that's how physical these battles can get. Do they fly much, or are they? Uh... They they'll they'll fly to get to a carcass. It's not you know they're not going to fly regularly, but if they're trying to get somewhere or cover large distances, like uh, you know they can smell carcasses great distances away, and so at that point it's easier to fly to the carcass. But while you're at the carcass and kind of living out your normal life, you're not they're not flying too much because it's it uses a lot of energy it's to the fly. Isn't flying, yeah. So the beetle, you're you're now fighting it out for this carcass. And okay. if you're one of the larger beetles, one of the larger physical beetles, you're probably going to be the one that fights everyone off and wins dominance over the, the carcass. And it, it, if you have multiple species coming to this carcass, it's usually going to be the species that are the larger ones that, that win against the smaller ones. And then, like you said, the smaller ones, if you are one of the smaller ones, you'll probably just leave and try and find a carcass that is... Find your own carcass. Yeah, find go find your own carcass. This is my carcass now. And the males will usually fight the males, and the females usually fight the females until one pair remains. Aww. So, do they start as pairs? No, they come in, or do they just like? Nope they they find all each other. Yep, they find the they, they find each other it's in like a, battle. It's like a Klingon marriage ritual. <laughs> find each other over the dead rotting carcass, and that's what reunites you with your with the <laughs> with your partner. True love. 
So when the dominant pair remains, so you have a one male and one female that are the dominant ones that fought all the other males and females, the male now has to stridulate. What this means is they rub their abdomen against their elytra. They have these specialized structures on their abdomen and their elytra that they rub against each other and they make this basically this scratching sound. And if the female likes the scratching sound, uh, she will then mate with the male. And if she doesn't, she might kick him out. Wow. She, so it's not... Hard work out it's, there. It's a lot a of male, work. Yeah. You have to first fight off all these all these other dudes, and then you have to impress them. Then the, you have to play Wonderwall. Then you have to play Wonderwall on your body guitar mm-hmm. to impress the female. So if the female approves, then you guys start digging a hole. Or moving the carcass to a suitable digging spot because uh, concrete you can't really dig through. So they're like lesbians. They just immediately move in together. <laughs> they, immediately, they go on one date and they move in. They move in and they move their carcass to to a suitable digging ground. And they actually get underneath the carcass and move the dirt from underneath the carcass. It's not like they move, they dig a hole and then push the carcass into the hole. <laughs> They just remove the dirt from underneath the tar- the carcass. Seems efficient, honestly. Uh, this can take up to 5 to 24 hours, depending on the species and how fast the the pair is at digging. You and know, the size it, of the corpse, probably. Yeah, and the size of the corpse, and if they bicker during, sure, <laughs> yeah. during digging. After the hole is dug, they roll the carcass up into a ball to decrease the surface area of the carcass. It's to help prevent decay, so smaller surface area, things decay slower. The fur and feathers are removed from the dead animal, fur or feathers. Most things don't have both. (laughs) Then the beetles secrete oral and anal substances all over the carcass. So they, they, they vomit and poop on the carcass, and their secretions have these antimicrobial properties in them to further help prevent the decay of the organism. So they like embalm the organism. They basically, yeah, they embalm the the organism. So they could be running for coroner next next election day, <laughs> burying beetle for coroner. Mm. Uh, the female then lays her eggs. She typically lays 10 to 15 eggs per brood chamber. And then they cover the um, organism to like different extents. This is all kind of dependent on the species. And this is where scientists really get interested is the, the parents stick around during the developmental period. Which I feel like is so rare in the animal kingdom. Uh, yeah. Like, and even in the beet, like especially in the beetles, you have biparental care, not just the female, which is, is I don't know if it's necessarily common, but it's definitely more common than both organisms, both parents sticking around. Right. And they do this so they can fight off competitors, so other burying beetles that might arrive late to the party, mm. <laughs> like really late to the party. Um, and they also regurgitate food for their offspring. And um, like like these secretions that they do, the their the regurgitated food has antimicrobial and, uh, properties to it that help prevent like fungal and bacteria growth. And they also it helps stimulate the hormones of the offspring that. Uh, promote growth so they so basically they promote the the babies to grow faster 
So this this has been studied a lot in science because it's not super common, but these beetles are relatively common. Like I found one this this summertime just on just coincidence when they're usually active during during the the most of the summer and i believe that they overwinter as adults so they'll just go into diapause during the winter time and then just continue their life cycles in the in the springtime there are sometimes guests in these brood chambers (laughs) though so brood chamber is basically a fancy term for their Dead rotting carcass. Yeah, dead rotting carcass <laughs> ball that they put their their offspring in. So in the forensic entomology episode, I mentioned that some burying beetles have, a, there's been multiple pairs observed burying a carcass. So you'll have multiple parent pairs burying a carcass. As I researched this a little bit more for this episode, it's not as clean and cut as I think I quote unquote said working together as a community um this is usually this usually happens because the carcass in this instance is really big and one pair simply can't move it on their own and so they have no choice but to have others basically help dig kind of do it together yeah so the the that they can all eat instead of nobody eating. Yeah, it's not by choice, but they also recognize that it, carcasses are are kind of a valuable resource and if it's the if it's to choose between having no one laying eggs and right. being able to lay your eggs and maybe competing with the the other parents' larvae, then it's probably better to just allow other parents to to help out and compete with their larvae <laughs> later. But also in instances where males arrive before the female, they will just start burying a carcass before the female gets there. So they're kind of ready when the female gets there. So the the bed's nice and made. And then they and, can all fight. Yeah, and then they can fight when she actually gets there. Wow. So the carcass might be all ready and the female then just arrives and then the males uh, fight it out. And then she just, she mates with the male that wins this battle and so that's why you might have some instances of multiple burying beetles basically working together to build this carcass so it makes sense that the burying beetles don't really want to work together and that they do it more out of like necessity necessity because the parents can be pretty hardcore sometimes <laughs> the parents will often cannibalize their young when food gets scarce to basically uh thin out the herd and then you allow a greater chance for the ones that survive to get more food and become bigger carrion beetles and and in the life history of a carrion of a excuse me, of a sexton beetle, being the bigger one is the important part because right. in the end you're like you grow up and then go fight other individuals. So being bigger and size kind of matters. Size matters bit. within the sexton beetles. So parents will just eat their young to <laughs> so that the survivors can be the bigger grow and better big ones. And strong. Okay. Some other visitors of the brood chamber are uh, nematodes. And scientists have discovered that these nematodes are often hitching rides on this on the sexton beetles. And it, there's a lot of research that's lacking on the effects of these nematodes on the nest, but they've observed that these nematodes will hitch rides on the adults, and when the adults make a nest, 
the nematodes will basically drop off. They'll eat the carrion in the nest and develop. And then when the brood develop into adults, they'll jump back on the, the offspring and then hitch rides to new nests. And nematodes just little tiny bugs? So nematodes are their own phylum. So arthropod is the phylum for insects, but that contains a lot of other groups of organisms. Nematodes are a really large classification for a lot of organisms in their own phylum. So they they look like worms, but they're not even closely related to worms, except for the fact that they develop their... <laughs> that they don't have a, um, a vertebrae. They're invertebrates. And these nematodes, like I said before, it's unsure if this is like a positive or negative relationship for the beetles. How they are eating the the food for the beetles, but it's it's unclear to like the extent of how much they're eating and how much this affects the the beetles. So it's it's a really understudied. Uh, compared to our other group, there's often mites that are hitchhikers of burying beetles as well. And I noticed this when I found the burying beetle, found, quote unquote, the burying beetle that I collected. It had a lot of mites on it. And these mites, again, are uh, hitchhike on adult burying beetles and they drop off when the burying beetle makes a brood chamber. And the mites will eat the eggs of flies that might lay their offspring in brood chambers, but they often will eat the eggs of the beetles too. So this is kind of a complex relationship with the mites where the mites are often, their whole life cycle might depend on living with these beetles. There's a lot of species of mites that are very specific to burying beetles and might be specific to a certain species of burying beetle. And their whole life history depends on these beetles. And so they they are putting some pressure on the beetles, but it it's they've co-evolved over such a long period of time that the beetles have adapted to to be able to tolerate these mites. Well, and the beetles are eating their own eggs anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, so the mites probably like, well, why yeah. do you care if I eat some yeah. eggs? And they are also helping with the flies too. So it is it is a generally a positive relationship for both organisms. Now that we've kind of gone over the life his the cool life history I want to mention of the sexton beetles, I'm going to mention a specific species of sexton beetle that uh, you actually tattooed on my chest. And I'm going to talk about the American burying beetle. The Latin name is Necrophorus americanus. They are a federally endangered species and they were listed in 1989. I want to mention, <laughs> this is a little side tangent that I think about a lot. Insects are grossly under underrepresented on the Endangered Species Act. Uh, so I looked it up. There's 93 insect species that are either endangered or threatened on the U.S. endangered species list. Uh, so that accounts for 5.5% of the total species on the list, there's a total of 1,667 species listed as either endangered or threatened. However, 932 of those species are plants. So you're if you take plants out of the factor, so just animals, insects account for 
percent of all species on the Endangered Species Act, which is a little better, but if you consider the amount of species that insects represent as a whole, there's like way more insects than mammals, right? Or like yeah. Animals. So there's currently or as of 2017, there's 1,013,825 described insect species in the world with estimates between 2.6 and 7.8 million insect species in existence. Obviously, there's a big range because it's hard to estimate species that we don't know about. Yeah. Uh, so even going on the lower end, 2.6 million insect species compared to there's 6,400 described mammal species, which... So that, the ratios are off. The ratios are a little off. So it's... I, I wanted to bring that up because it's really cool that when there's insect species represented on the endangered species list, because there's a lot of them out of there, and they're probably suffering from the same problems as our large mammals are, but they just don't get the rep like large charismatic mammals do and birds and all that stuff. So the original range of the American burying beetle was basically every state east of the Rocky Mountains, but they did kind of stay away from coastal Carolina, southern Florida, which everyone should do anyways, and northern Maine. So they basically conquered the east, but weren't able to conquer the Rocky Mountains. That was just too much of a barrier for them to be able to get over to, to barrier? get... That was too much of a barrier for them. <laughs> However, their current range now is small pockets in Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, Arkansas, and there is a island off the coast of Rhode Island called Block Island that they are found on. So probably the worst states you could ever live in in the East <laughs> is where they reside. And that's about 10% of their former range. There's a lot of theories about its decline. Uh, do you want to take some guesses? That to I like... already read. I read I, you didn't see all of them, though. DDT. Okay. Predators. Okay. An unknown pathogen. Um... Now use your brain and think about what might cause <laughs> the, their decline. Um, fewer little animals dying. For them to bury, maybe fewer creatures for them to prey on. Like if they're if creatures that they hunt are also become endangered or threatened, then there's probably not hunt. They don't really hunt; they scavenge. Yeah. But if there's fewer of those around, um, habitat loss, climate change, probably all of like the big ones that's affecting everyone everywhere. Since you read ahead and kind of hit them, DDT. I missed artificial lighting. Yep, artificial lighting. Is one that you missed, uh, but you did get DDT and pesticide use, artificial lighting. So because at night they do often get caught in lights. They uh, they do navigate a, a lot using the moon and the stars, much like someone who's reading their horoscope. Hmm. <laughs> and so they can get just caught in these lights and not be able to 
find their Which way out. Which is a out. big problem for a lot of insects, right? Yeah, a yeah. lot of lepidopterans or le- any sort of nocturnal insect, uh, most nocturnal insects have some sort of attractance to light and they just get caught in these lights and just they die. They think they're following the moon. Yeah. But they're just trying to get into your house. Yeah, so there's a lot of problem with artificial lighting and light pollution. An unknown pathogen, that's kind of like a hypothesized thing. They haven't really found a pathogen, but... It could be habitat loss and specifically the loss of old growth forests and prairies. These seem to be like the traditional ecosystems that they lived in. Um, and we don't really have a lot of old growth anymore and prairies are shrinking. Yeah. I bet prairies had all kinds of little critters living, living in them. Yeah. Prairies. All the grain and stuff. Prairies are something I often forget about as like being a really important ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That we've lost over then time. That we just bulldoze. That we just bulldoze. To plant soy fields and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, yeah, loss of ideal carrion, specifically the extin- extinction of the passenger pigeon. Have you ever heard of the passenger pigeon? I don't know what the passenger pigeon is. The passenger pigeon was basically this native bird to the Americas that we hunted to extinction. They were about the size of a pigeon you might see in New York City. But they lived in woodlands. They were a woodland species, and their new their numbers were so numerous that that scientists estimated that some of their historical flocks had over billion uh, individuals. Wow. And they would bl- they would literally blot out the sun if the flocks went overhead. Oh my god! And we did, and we hunted them to extinction. Uh, and the passenger pigeon happened to be like the perfect carcass size for the American burying beetle. It was not too big, not too small, that Goldilocks zone where <laughs> it was uh, it was big enough for their uh, offspring to get the nutrition that they needed, but it wasn't too big that they couldn't bury it. Hmm. However, the strongest hypothesis that scientists have come up with is the loss of large apex apex predators leading to the increased competition from smaller predators. And it might sound a little weird. Yeah, a little upside down, but... So as we lost large predators like the gray wolf and the mountain lion, there was actually a boom of smaller predators like the American crow, the red and gray fox, the striped skunk, the raccoon, the Norway rat, and the feral cat. And so basically... Like like house cats. yeah, Yeah, yeah. And so basically the these large apex predators kept the 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 numbers of these smaller predators lower and like because they so would things that were even farther down the food chain also had a, like a little bit more chance to God, what am I trying to say? So things that were farther down this food chain had more opportunities to thrive because raccoons weren't hunting them. Yes, exactly. So the raccoon wouldn't steal the passenger pigeon carcass because they were being uh, they were being eaten by wolves and mountain lions. And so with the loss of wolves and mountain lions, like you had increases in foxes who. Uh, would gladly eat something the size of a passenger pigeon Hmm. and steal it away from the burying beetles. There's probably a lot of worth in all these theories. I'm sure it's not just a cut clean, like this is the cause. I'm sure climate change has to do with it. DDT has to do with it. And and now any pesticides we use now, because we're not using DDT anymore, habitat loss that seems you know that affects everything sure 
it's probably all these theories combined, but the strongest one seems to be that the we lost our large apex predators. And to anyone that wants to, to write me about this, there are no breeding populations of mountain lions in New York State. Doesn't matter what your uncle got on his trail camera. <laughs> it's not a mountain lion. I saw a bobcat once by the side of the road. He was so stinking cute. It could And it could have been a bobcat too. You know? Yeah. <laughs> we have bobcats. Right? We have bobcats, yeah. yeah. And we have a, an increasing population of bobcats, was, which is probably bad for the burying beetle. He was so beetle. cute. I wanted to pet him so bad, but, you know, bobcat. It probably wouldn't let you. Probably did not want to be pet by me, but, man, he was cute. So this is a little doom and gloom for the, the American burying beetle. They're in 10% of their historical range. Oh, and I feel like whenever I learn anything about prairies and what the prairies weren't once were i am sad because it seems like it really a, a kind of a great loss to a lot of species and, and environments the way we treated that yeah and the, not to get too much on a tangent but it's probably one of those ecosystems where we wouldn't think that there's a lot of things that lived there but mm -hmm. there probably was yeah. a lot of things that lived there and you talk about the desert like that a lot where like people don't expect yeah these... there to be a lot of life but there's a lot of life and like the, the prairies had so much food right yeah you know, all this grain that just sort of just all that grass yeah so all that I'm grass sure that were, just... I'm sure there were all sorts of little little critters uh, eating that and uh -huh. so all sorts of burying beetles eating them but to finish on a on a more positive note and again this is this species is on the endangered species act and part of the whole endangered species act is to try and help species that are are recognized as as threatened or endangered at SUNY Cobleskill, there's two staff members there, Dr. Carmen Greenwood and Dr. Brandon uh, Quingby. Quingby? Quingby. They received grant funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to research suitable areas and reintroduce the American burying beetle in New York. Most of these areas are over in Albany, which is a little closer to SUNY Cobleskill, but there are people out there doing research specifically on this beetle and trying to reintroduce it into the eastern states so and, and this is kind of like a little local uh a local instance of that so cool nice yeah. job suny cobble skill thanks thanks yeah i i really i still really like i like bearing beetles they've got a great story you know the the story of their life cycle is I don't know, kind of charming. It's got it all. It's got romance and conflict and child rearing and and kind of a gross, ooky aspect. It's just a great. It's a great story. Yeah, and they're like cute and they very are. charismatic. Yeah. If I think if you were to like show a picture of one to mm -hmm. someone, they they probably wouldn't have such a they wouldn't have an uh, adverse reaction like they would to a fly or something. Right. So. Yeah. They definitely are like a, one of the cuter insects. Yeah, they've got such cute little spots. They're great. So hopefully next episode we will be talking... We're going to finish that book. <laughs> and we'll be talking about the, the cochineal insect and about the, the color of red and... We were just watching an Antiques Roadshow where they were showing a rug that was dyed with cochineal, um, cochineal pigment. So, which I'd never even heard of before and then it shows up immediately. That concludes our episode for today. If you have enjoyed our podcast... 
please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We don't pay to advertise our podcast, so telling your friends and sharing it with your family gets the word out there and it's greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to contact me. I'm at bdkn223 at uky.edu. Thank you for listening and remember to stay spineless. one of the larger physical beat physical beat so nematodes are they're com so nematodes are com jeez oh, okay words are hard you're doing great then the beetles secrete or oh man oral <laughs> having a hard time with that word <laughs>